Welcome to In Loving Recollection. This is your pal Brent. This past June, I woke up in the middle of the night in excruciating pain. The cause of this, I would find out, were three large kidney stones inside my left kidney. Now, this was not my first bout with kidney stones, but by far the worst. If you've had them, you know how awful they can be. For me, it felt like my testicles had relocated to my lower back and someone was just continuously kicking them as hard as possible. I was miserable. I couldn't eat or sleep. I was nauseous, incoherent, and angry. The painkillers I was prescribed did nothing for me other than prevent me from going on my morning drives, which had been an important part of my daily routine of self-soothing during the pandemic. My only comforts during this time were frequent hot showers and episodes of Gilmore Girls. I was also doing a lot of living inside of my head, because there's nothing quite like pain to make you ponder your own fragility. My suffering had reminded me that I was no longer a young man able to treat my body as I pleased, without any repercussions. I was so frustrated with myself for once again putting my body through this. I knew better, but had spent the time between this bout and the last rationalizing the continuation of the calls and convincing myself that I was doing enough preventative measures, which really is such typical human behavior. While living inside my head, I thought about how I've spent a good portion of my life as the embodiment of this spirit, doing the things I knew I should not, yet somehow assuring myself that my justifications were valid. I thought of the numerous occasions I compromised my happiness for unreciprocated love, believing that they'd eventually come around, but secretly knowing they probably never would. I also thought of all the times I didn't follow through with something because of a fear of failure and a general discomfort with vulnerability. So yeah, kidney stones are pretty terrible. It was such an emotional experience, even after the whole ordeal was over and I began to feel like myself again. I remember the first car ride I was able to take after being off the pain medication. I was listening to a playlist I created when a particular track came on and affected me in a profound way. Now, I already loved this song, and had listened to it numerous times before. But there was something about that moment, the combination of hearing this beautiful voice sing these really wonderful lyrics, with the sense of relief and gratitude I felt. It caused me to start involuntarily sobbing in the car. And the song that caused this reaction was Human by Molly Sarlet. I first became aware of Sarlay's music through her work in Mountain Man, which I came to through Alex Bleeker and the Freak's Crazy Horse Channeling cover of their song Animal Tracks. I would keep up with the group throughout the years and check in on the various projects of the individual members. I remember learning that Sarlay had made a solo record, and I figured it would be something I'd eventually seek out. But my interest in this record was further piqued after hearing an interview with Jeff Tweedy, in which he espoused his love for human, saying of Sarlay's song that it has the hallmarks of a great song and that you want to hear it again when it's over, and considering that the man has written his fair share of great songs that I've wanted to hear again when they're over, I thought I should probably listen. 
by God, Jeff Tweedy was right. Human blew my mind. It was so good. There wasn't a single thing about this song that I disliked. So with that, I decided to dive in. I put on Molly Sarlay's 2019 solo debut, Karaoke Angel, and I listened. This is the story of that record. My horoscope says I've My name is Molly Sarlay, and I pretty much wrote all the songs and sang and played a lot of guitar and co-produced the record, Karaoke Angel. I gotta prove to myself that it's all about. Molly Sarlay would spend her youth on the coast of Central California in the small beach community of Santa Cruz. I loved growing up there. Got to ride my bike everywhere. I didn't get my driver's license till I was 19 because I didn't really need it. It's like a really small beach town populated by, I mean, a lot of different kinds of people live there, but a pretty big population of older hippies and <laughs> now they're their children yeah and the college is kind of like up on the hill so I mean it's been strange for me as someone you know I was born there 31 years ago so I've seen it change a lot um since when I was growing up and it's not really like the quiet, slow-moving peach town that it used to be. It's, um, I mean, it is right now because of the coronavirus, um, which is interesting. But because of like the increased population of students and tourists, it's kind of become like a pretty busy small beach town. <laughs> Sarlay began singing at an early age, and though she would play in bands as a teenager, Music was not something she initially intended on pursuing professionally. I've been, like, singing since I was a baby. <laughs> My dad, bless him, just listened to mostly, like, Enya. <laughs> and My mom has a really beautiful voice, and I think I kind of learned how to harmonize. I'm just listening to her sing, give me a car. Um, but music was never something that I thought I would pursue as a career. I was like much more into theater and acting. Um, I was in a band called Little Ghost Things in high school 
with my high school boyfriend and I played the flute. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I played the flute in that band. It was kind of like, it was like a little bike punk band. Like we, they'd play shows at the bike church. I was also in like another band at like a Cal Arts summer camp called the Tick Only Hell Knows. But we, you know, we were only together for a month and we just recorded a four song EP about global warming. And it was like a concept EP in which uh, it was like a story about the whales growing arms and legs and then walking on land and like eating people. So <laughs> that was really, really fun. It was super fun. Um, we were really, we were a really big hit. Like a lot. Of, I was the only girl in the Tickle Me Hell Knows, but we had a lot of um, female fans who like made their own T-shirts with like spray painted whales on them, and they came to our concerts. It was pretty fun. <laughs> it is as a teenager that Sarlay would begin to experiment with songwriting. The main songwriters for. Little Ghostings were my boyfriend Ian and his friend Dustin. I wrote one song with Ian called <laughs> Springtime, which is a duet. I'm not trying to toot my own horn, but I've got pretty good flow, you know, so I could write a lot of songs off the fly, like a moldy peaches style in high school, but it wasn't ever really something that I was trying to do. And the first song that I wrote pretty much was the dog song, which is a song that's on a Mountain Man record. living with my friend Allie in New Orleans and um, like she had left and I was feeling really nervous to be this house that um, didn't have any windows and doors and there were like jellyfish and penises spray painted all over the walls and um, so I think I was just like singing to comfort myself and I picked up this guitar and it only had three strings on it. Um, that was the first song I wrote. After graduating from high school, Sarlay moves across the country to attend Bennington College in Vermont. And it is there that she would meet her future mountain man bandmates, Amelia Meath and Alexandra Salser Monig. I think I wanted to get away from California and my parents, you know, like a lot of 18-year-olds do. Um... And honestly, like, I applied to a lot of liberal arts colleges, and Bennington just gave me the most financial aid by far. So that was a pretty big deciding factor. I had met Amelia, but we weren't um, close friends, and I was taking a semester off from Bennington, kind of doing that thing. Didn't have any plan, but I knew I didn't want to be... Um, in school anymore. But I came back to visit Bennington and I was playing the dog song downstairs in like the living room because some of the dorms 
at Bennington, they're like really big houses. So there'd be like a house with 30 rooms and then a huge living room. I was singing with my friend Catherine Perkins and Amelia came downstairs and started harmonizing with us, which was pretty incredible because I don't even think we said anything. She just started singing with us. Um, That's kind of my thinking about it now, like my favorite way to move through the world with people is making music with them um, and not necessarily needing to involve too much conversation. Um, But yeah, after we sang it together for a little while, Amelia brought me up to her room and kind of made me teach her the song. And then, yeah, Amelia memorized the song and she taught it to Alexandra. So by the time that I came back to Bennington, Amelia and Alex both came up to my room and we sang it together for the first time. And it was a really wild and powerful experience. Encouraged by the experience of singing together, the trio would continue to explore the possibilities of their combined talents, eventually leading to the formation of Mountain Man. I think there wasn't even, like, really any question about, like, we were just so enchanted and absorbed by the experience of singing together, especially at first, because it was like we were discovering this magical power and every time that we got together to rehearse it was like confirmed in some new way it was like getting together to like discover or explore some kind of mystery at first but our friend Alex Bleeker who's in the band real estate was having a house show and he asked us to play so I think That's how we sort of started to decide that we were a band because before we played the house show, Alex Bleeker asked, he was like, okay, well, if you're going to play the show, then you need a band name. And Alexandra was like, how about Mountain Man? And we're like, yes, that sounds great. So we had a band name. So I guess like we're a band. So we played this first house show and then we played another show. Like Bennington was a huge incubator for us. We played another show in the downstairs of the commons, which was like where the dining hall was. But there was like a big kind of like hangout space below. Maybe people couldn't hear us. There were too many people and we didn't have any amplification. So we, it's actually very resourceful thinking. (laughs) Good job, young Molly, Alex, and Amelia. We um, moved the show to the stairwell of the same building because of, like, the reverb in the stairwell. And the third story of the building um, was, like, off-limits and abandoned. But, like, we sat up on the, like, the landing of the third story. And then everybody else, like, sat on the stairs all the way down to the first floor. And... I remember um, having this feeling while we were playing that show together of like, oh, this is what it feels like to having the same experience as 
so many other people at the exact same time. And um, I didn't know that that feeling was possible. Um, And it was after that show that I think like we were all in the car driving back home together and we're like, well, I think we should take this show on the road because it's like um, just, you know, we all felt it. It was kind of undeniably powerful. After self-releasing some music, the band would sign with the New York City independent label, Partisan Records. We had a meeting with this like subsidiary of like a very large record company and we sang for them and it just really felt like we were zoo animals or something you know, and they were definitely going to want to put us on a particular kind of track, which I don't think appealed to us. Then we had a meeting with Tim Putnam of Partisan Records. Something got lost in translation because we all thought that it was a meeting like for possible record deal, but actually a meeting for him to just kind of present another kind of label's perspective to us to like be helpful but like you know tim explained that they are the kind of record label that's like for artists you know so whatever way we wanted to live out or like play out our careers that's how they wanted to support us and then he like got up to go to the bathroom and i was like guys what do you think and where we were all like, yeah, let's do it. Let's sign with this guy. So Tim, Tim came back to the table and we're like, yes, we accept. We accept the record deal. But there was actually no record deal. But um, I think he also felt very connected to us. So he was just like, yeah, okay, great. Let's do it. And then um, we all went for a walk together. And like at some point we sang for Tim. Partisan Records releases Mountain Man's debut album, Made the Harbor, in the summer of 2010. The following year, the trio would join the touring band of Canadian singer-songwriter Leslie Feist during her tour to support her then-new record, Metals. And it is following the tour's conclusion that Sarlay decides to take a break from music. I was really exhausted. We played like 136 shows or something in a year. And I also saw the way the music industry affected, like, the self. And I think I also felt, like, pretty out of control of my life. Like, other people were making so many of the basic decisions for me. Then I moved to a Zen center, <laughs> which was different with being on the road. Like, pretty, pretty extreme move. I had been to Green Gulch, which is the name of the Zen Center above San Francisco before, and really loved it there. Um, but I think I wanted to go there after being on tour because I wanted to have like space within that structure to really figure out how I felt about everything. Because I think part of what, like the pressure that I felt in the music industry was that like. I was supposed to be feeling a certain way about my life experience. Like I was supposed to be loving it. I was supposed to be super excited about like traveling the world um, and singing back up. And I didn't feel that way um, a lot of the time. And so I think like that was also 
what was like hard or upsetting to me. I felt like I was expected to feel a way that I didn't. Following her stay at the Zen Center, Sarlay relocates to Los Angeles to pursue acting. Eventually, through the encouragement of Leslie Feist, she would choose to make music again. Like songs were still coming to me. And I would like sing for friends when they came over and really enjoyed it. Um, And then Leslie and a lot of the people, Charles Spearin, who were in her band when we toured together, visited Los Angeles. And I was hanging out with all of them and, you know, like talking about how I was struggling and like really hating working at this vegan restaurant. (laughs) And they were like, well, we're not surprised by that. Like, you're great at making music. Why aren't you making music, basically? And I had been getting ready to like take sight reading classes so that I could be a session singer. And I was hanging out with Leslie and she was like, Molly, you're a lightning bolt and there aren't many lightning bolts and you should do your own thing. Like, don't be a session singer. And I think like I had felt so, (laughs) I had felt so invisible in a way, like in Los Angeles that, I mean, I don't know because life is a really strange journey and a lot of the times I don't have any idea what I'm doing (laughs) um it just feels like committing to a choice but like having these people who I respected so much reflect back a certain amount like a lot of respect to me I think was kind of like a wake-up call or um felt empowering and with music I could tell whatever stories I wanted to tell like I could build my own platform um and it seemed like with acting in many ways I would have to be telling other people's stories for a while until I was like successful enough to tell my own. Sarlay decides to relocate once more with the intent of working on music for her new solo project. I decided to move to Big Sur to work on music because, you know, being in L.A. was so challenging in a way, and I realized that I didn't need to be there to write songs. Twisted and Kimberly, I had already written. Those songs were the kind of songs that just came out. And so this was the first time that I ever actually sat down and had a songwriting practice and also started to really try to learn the guitar. It was so different, and there were so many things that I needed to learn that I didn't know that I needed to learn because Mountain Man was so easy in a way, you know, like I didn't need to know how to arrange a song because that, like so many of the intuitive things of Mountain Man were things that I then had to like learn to build in the realm of a solo project. I didn't really write any songs. (laughs) Um, I wrote a lot of songs about Big Sur, but I didn't really write any songs in Big Sur. 
I tried to. I really tried to. But, you know, I was, like, living at the top of a mountain in a trailer that hadn't been inhabited for 30 years by any people, but a lot of mice lived there. And I think I was, like, too distracted by trying to find, like, a comfortable living situation when I was in Big Sur to, like, actually write songs. And I also think that, like, I mean, songwriting is different for everyone, but for me, I'm writing about specific experiences. So until I have that experience to write about, there is no song. So there are, like, long periods of time when I don't write anything. It doesn't mean that I'm not, like, sitting down and trying to sometimes, but usually there will be like an intense period of experience. And also so much of songwriting to me is about like perspective and it takes time for my perspective to change. So like even in thinking about writing songs for my next record, if that's something that ever happens, um, I'll like try and sit down and write a song. But my way of thinking about, people and relationships in the world feels like way too similar to the way I was thinking when I wrote the last record. So I have to like wait for myself to change as a person before I can make anything that I think is actually worthwhile or interesting. In the time since their last tour together, the members of Mountain Man had remained in touch. At separate points, both Meath and Saucer Monig had relocated to North Carolina and had been urging Sarlay to do the same. With the help of her bandmates, Sarlay moves to Durham, North Carolina, and begins arranging the songs that would make up Karaoke Angel. Nick and Amelia had a studio set up in their house at that point, and I would work on demos there when they were on tour. And also, I met now my dear friend, uh, Ryan Gessifson, who his band is called The Dead Tunks, and Ryan helped me shape a lot of those songs. Alexandra, her solo project was opening for his record release party, and I was singing back up for her, and I was really blown away and, like, touched by Ryan's music. So I asked him if he wanted to work on things together. I also had a huge crush on him, you know. (laughs) For Karaoke Angel... Brooklyn-based singer-songwriter Sam Evian is brought in to co-produce the record with Sarlet. has released two excellent albums through Saddle Creek Records, has worked with a number of notable artists including Anna Birch, Widow's Peak, and Cass McCombs. For the sessions, Sarlay and Evian, along with bassist Brian Betancourt and drummer Otto Hauser, convene at Dreamland Recording Studios in upstate New York. So there's like a whole version of Karaoke Angel that Ryan and I recorded together at a studio professionally in North Carolina that just didn't click. 
Um, and in the process of trying to make it click, Sam was going to mix that version of the record. And I met Sam in Brooklyn to talk about like how to put the songs that we had together. And then I was lucky enough to get the opportunity to re-record the whole thing again. My manager at the time, Bob Moses, I believe is and was Sam Evian's manager. So Bob was like, why don't we have Sam produce it? And I didn't know Sam very well. I kind of like <laughs> took a big chance, but like I like what I knew about his vibe. Yeah, then we went to Dreamland and... I'm so glad that we did and we became fast friends. Before we went to Dreamland, Sam came and stayed at my house for a couple of days and I just played all of the songs for him on my guitar in my room and he recorded them all on an iPhone. And he was like, okay, everything that we need is just in you playing. Like, if we just made a record that was just you playing a guitar and singing, it would be great, you know? So we're just like capturing that and going from there. And knowing that I was working with someone who understood that put me at ease because I wasn't trying to work with somebody who was like, we need to like take it up 10 notches and, you know, try it and make something that it wasn't. I think one of the ideas that Sam presented to me that made me feel like inclined to work with him was he wanted to work at Dreamland because basically like the space would allow us to, we recorded a lot of the vocals with a PA on. So like I didn't wear headphones, which means that I could just like feel my voice in the space, which is super important to me in order to like uh not get stuck in my head and like have a full body experience um <laughs> while singing um so yeah it was super fun and liberating there are a lot of really weird gigantic percussion objects around it's a church it's a church that's been converted into a studio so there's lots of really great natural reverb and then they made a record.
karaoke angel opens with human and wastes no time in confirming how special this record truly is. Chiming 12-string guitar and a steady rhythm section create a musical foundation on which the song's strong lyrics of unrequited love and human truths are delivered through Sarley's powerful and heartfelt vocals. studio was it was basically just me and Sam I think on a 12 string and Brian on bass and we were all sitting in like a tiny circle together because um, we had tried recording it with just like me on the electric guitar and didn't really find its groove yeah and so we just all sat around in a circle together and I sang and they played and we recorded it like three or four times and that was the track. So most of the song, like the recording, is actually just one live take. Um, melody is not something that I think about very much. Um, I think it's mostly intuitive and I'm, I'm like responding to my emotional world into the emotional like landscape of the story. And I'm also responding to what Sam is doing and what Brian is doing. It's one of those songs that's like, uh, it's about a lot of things. Um, it's kind of like I was working on three different songs, and then when this song came together, it all rolled into one. It's an interesting, like, I know my answer to that question is going to be different now than when I wrote it because of the way people have responded to it and what it's about to them. But if I were to try and boil it down to something, it's like reckoning with the um like the power of the experience and the feeling of being in love with someone and like everything that goes into that like belief systems <laughs> your childhood like everything that informs that experience and also coming to terms with the fact that that is just yours and then in like in in some ways it doesn't have anything to do with the other person when everything happens, you said you recognized me 
With its driving rhythms and smart arrangement, the track This Close speaks on the complexities of being in love with a person with destructive tendencies. So this song is about like a particular person in a way that I fell in love with in Big Sur and um, my friend would describe this guy like he was a fallen angel who'd come to taste all of the world's pleasures for the first time. So it was like this person, we'll just call him Max, like Max um, has this like inherent ephemeral glow that lives inside of them regardless of like what they're putting into their body or how they're treating themselves um and it's kind of miraculous like a dying star (laughs) (laughs) this one was the hardest one to get i think um Ryan Gustafson, this song is pretty similar to the way we had arranged it for the original recording of the album. And he had a vision for how to arrange it pretty like quickly into the process of us working on this song together. And we talked about like the landscape of Big Sur a lot while working on and arranging this song and Yeah, one of the ways that I came to work with Sam was, this was one of the songs that he was um, mixing. And he had like Brian and Otto come into the studio before we were even trying to re-record everything together. Um, And I had sent him like some photos of Big Sur. He like had them. He sent me a picture from the recording session of like himself having that photo up and looking at it, which is one of the reasons also why I like trusted him and wanted to work with him is that like, I felt like he took what I gave him seriously (laughs) and incorporated that into his creative process. It was really important to me that like the landscape of Big Sur was reflected in the way this song was arranged and recorded, like certain parts of it, the, the guitar part, feel like waves crashing on big rocks um and so much of the big sur landscape is just about like the space of the ocean and the sky that needs to be a lot of space in there
Following this close is the slow-churning and lyrically rich title track, which, like many of the songs on this record, was inspired by Sarlay's time in Big Sur. Well, a big part of my Big Sur experience, especially as far as like socializing goes, was at a motel that also had a bar in town that did karaoke every other week. And I love karaoke as a way to watch people who may not usually get up on stage perform and like express that part of themselves. Um, So I think like part of the reason why I chose karaoke angel for the title of this album is because um, it's about storytelling, um, mostly telling my own story, but um, I also have this, especially in the past, I've had this propensity or ability to like disappear in order to try and see other people and that's kind of what karaoke angel is about too is like being someone or something that like moves around a room and observes other people without really being seen i loved recording that song the original version was a lot more upbeat um but we slowed it down a lot when we recorded it, and it, we record, recorded it late at night. And um, it was kind of like my cowboy junkies, sweet Jane dream come true. Like the whole, it was like we kind of just entered this like very relaxed, watery world and hung out there for a while. The track Almost Free is a sparingly arranged number that primarily features Sarley's electric guitar and heart-rending vocal performance, allowing the focus to be on the songwriter's deeply personal lyrics. came out um, all at once and it was like a lot of feelings I didn't know that I had rising from my subconscious 
So that part about it was kind of interesting to me that something was like buried so deep that it needed like <laughs> a riff to come out on. Um, but yeah, it is really heavy and I mean like pretty explicitly in the song. It's about like a couple conversations I had with my dad um, and he was talking to me about wanting to commit suicide and or or contemplating. I don't know. I would say wanting. Part of the reason why this song is called Almost Free is because I also <laughs> had this thought that, um, like, I don't know if I believe in reincarnation, but the idea that, like, we spend so much of our lives trying to escape suffering and just, like, wondering if death is even a way to actually do that and maybe maybe it is and you know like that sort of a question that I'm asking as a person who is thinking about these conversations I had with my dad but also he has three different autoimmune diseases so I don't think I know like how much suffering he goes through or has gone through on a daily basis. But I just um, was also thinking about the idea that um, the way that we deal with our suffering as individuals and other people's suffering in the particular moment is so incredibly important because it might not be something that we ever get to like ultimately escape just like wait it out or like ignore it until we're somewhere else or something else this time I think I'm I was crying. <laughs> yeah, and the pause was longer. Um, we're trying to make all of the recordings as like viscerally true as possible with the understanding that like the emotional resonance of the songs was their strength, you know? So we decided to keep that pause in there it's like all one that song is also all one life take or the vocal guitar part Continuing the sparseness of the previous song, Sarlay once again demonstrates her impressive display of vulnerability with the track Twisted. 
I think it was a song that I like kind of came through as like a message to myself. Like so often when we think about ourselves or we think about other people, we want to be like, okay, so this is my narrative and this is how I'm right and this is how this other person's wrong. But like in many ways, um, at the end of the day, that's like not, uh, it's just so much more complicated than that. But we're never ultimately maybe going to, escape trying to think about things that way um so like just that part of the human experience and like recognizing your own flaws and also recognizing that they might never go away at the same time (laughs) it was the first song we recorded and it was the first take it was the first song yes it was the first song we recorded in dreamland we did one take And then I fell on the floor and started crying because I was so stressed out about the idea of needing to finish the whole record in 10 days and not knowing if that would happen. And and also, there's Sam and he's my new friend and I'm on the floor crying, but also just like, well this is me and Sam's going to know that I'm a highly emotional person sooner rather than later. So I guess we'll just, we don't really have any time to bullshit around feelings. So, um, I guess I will just cry on the floor right now. And, um, yeah, Sam, Sam really helped me out of that pickle. He was like, Hey, we're going to do whatever we can in 10 days and we may not finish it. And if we don't, that's also okay. We'll figure something out. So, yeah, Sam has just this, like, very uh, ultimate, relaxed attitude. Great to be around and, like, allowed for a lot of exploration that may not have been possible if I had felt like there wasn't room for that. Something that he said to me when we were pretty much done with recording the record, I think I asked him about like why he approached things the way he did and he said he had um 
a mentor who told him that producing is 90% Hugo, like it's 90% hosting. You're just there to make the person who is like they're recording feel comfortable so that they can do the best work they can do. And like, I think that says so much about his approach. He's like a great creative host (laughs) (laughs) who's also incredibly talented and can play a million different instruments and is, you know, a wonderful engineer. So all of that, I think also help Sam know that he's going to be able to do what needs to get done and not be stressed out about it. Standing in contrast with the sparse nature of the previous track is the joyous pop of Faith for Doubt. This song I wrote about my grandmother, who I never met on my dad's side, and she had a really difficult life from what I can understand. She was a single mother, you know, in like the 60s, which was uncommon. And um, I'd like to imagine like, as somebody who had such a different life than I do, what kind of advice she would give me. That's what this song is me imagining. So many of the songs that I've written are just based on absolute personal experiences. I had a really good time writing a song that involved like a certain amount of imagination. And honestly, I feel like the recording of this song is one of, like it's good, but it's the one that I think is like the least successful (laughs) as far as, yeah, as far as like what I imagine. I don't know. I just... I feel like we hit it too hard. Like it needs to be pulled back a little bit in order to be felt more. But I do think it like reaches some of the joy points that I wanted to be reached. But yeah, this was one of the harder ones to record. So I think we were like, all right, let's just like, let's get out the click track and make it a pop song. No, the world. 
The track Kimberly, like much of Karaoke Angel, is a subdued number in which the musical backing largely consists of Sarley's silvertone guitar, accompanied by subtle touches of drums and keys, which rightfully allows the focal points to be on her gorgeous voice and wonderful lyrics. I think the first song I wrote for this record, um, the first half of the song is to one person and the second half of the song is to another person. And what I wanted to write it about was, um, (laughs) I don't know how to say this without saying a lot. Uh, (laughs) The idea that like, I mean, I don't know. I don't even know if this is this is gender specific. But I imagined when I was writing this song that as as women or as a woman, when somebody who you've been with moves on quickly, it's easy to feel like the love that you gave has been disregarded or unappreciated or it just like disappears. And I wanted to say, like, as the quote other woman in this circumstance, that I saw the love that this other person who was no longer there, I saw that love, like, still strongly existing in um, this man's life. So I wanted to write a song that was, like, from the other woman to the other woman saying, like, hey, I see your love and it's like it's it's still here actually it's everywhere i recorded it live in the room the guitar line i um heard very clearly in my mind the person who i'm singing about in the song he sent me a song really early on in our relationship and the guitar line it's like still stuck in my head. It goes like do 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 do, and I wanted to like incorporate this like the feeling of this guitar line that's stuck in my head into Kimberly somehow. As we near the end of the record, we get the aptly titled Dreams, 
Reverb-drenched guitar is decorated with atmospheric flourishes of flute, keyboard textures, and light percussion that coalesce nicely with Sarlay's warm, dreamlike vocals. a performance I felt really vulnerable. I mean, Dreams is like, to me, the most unspecific song lyrically on the record. And I think it's about like the, for me, the vulnerability of going up on stage and like having the main purpose of getting up there being like trying to communicate with people and trying to say something that resonates and um, kind of like asking that question while you're doing it, being like, do you, do you feel this? Like, does this make sense? And being willing to then change how you're communicating if it doesn't resonate and if it doesn't make sense. And like, yeah, the, the vulnerability of that kind of place of being like a giver and receiver of information at the same time, like up in front of people. track Suddenly, with its impassioned doubled vocals and Be My Baby beat, which, let me quickly say, is nearly always the indicator of a great song, did originally pose some difficulties in regards to finding its proper arrangement, due in part to the complexities of the song's subject matter. I wanted it to be kind of like a raw, like a Liz Fair song, and we recorded it in a couple different 
we have the most versions of this song, of the recording of this song, out of any from that session because it took us a while to figure out the zone that it lived in. Um, so we had kind of like a fast punk version, and eventually I was just like, oh, like no, it's none of these things. I'm going to go into the room, into the booth, whatever, and then I just did what we had been doing, which was guitar and vocals. It's not a very interesting story. We just <laughs> we just layered a bunch of stuff on top of it again. I mean, um, it was like one of the songs that Sam and I had a hard time like aligning on vision-wise. He was like, it sounds really aggressive. And I was like, yes. And he was like, oh, you want it to sound aggressive. And I was like, yes. It's an aggressive the song. It's aggressive. I want it to sound aggressive. And he was like, oh, okay. I usually, like, as a cis white man, try and stay away from, like, having my music sound aggressive. Like, I've never intentionally recorded an aggressive song. So that was, like, um, an interesting moment of understanding for me. I actually have our notes from recording in my closet. I'm getting them out right now. Um, we have this big chart of like everything that we had left to do on each song, like backing vocals, harmony, Molly shreds. That's a lot. Um, and then in suddenly I wrote possibly Molly solo because it's hard to explain to men that this song is about more than sex. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so that was in the notes. It was it was something that we had to, like, have some whiskey and talk about one night. To be like, guys, this is what this song's about to me. And they were like, oh, okay. Yeah, now we get it, you know. And, I mean, Exile and Guyville, I think, like, what I wanted this song to feel like is you know it's like oh, so much of that record is just like her her guitar and bass and like the way that she talks about sexual experiences by literally just saying what happened like here are the details we were checking into hotel i felt this way you know um but i think essentially what i wanted this song to be about is like it's about the experience of realizing that like your sexuality is for you before it's for anyone else because so often like we're taught that it's for someone else before it's for ourselves if we're not like cis white men <laughs> because I don't think I don't think I don't think that's an experience just that just women have either or no it's not and, but I think one of the things that shocked me when I put this song out in the world, because I think like conversations around female sexuality and around sexuality and sexual expression and gender identity in general have like come so far in, in so far as like being part of like the public sphere of conversation within like the past five years or so that. It really shocked me. Like one of the reviews of this record was like, Molly's are late. Or not 
record song was like Molly Harley talks about sex and grilled cheese and of course it was like written by a dude or like males who like saw the video seemed like offended by the way that I was expressing my sexuality and I was just like really I thought I thought we were done being threatened by this like it's really it's really nothing (laughs) I mean I guess it's not nothing but it Like, why is it so scary or offensive for me to be using my sexuality in whatever way I want to be using it? Like, what is so scary about that? final track, Passenger Side, is a song that once again plays to Sarley's strengths as an artist, using only her voice and electric guitar to frame her poignant lyrics, and in doing so, nicely concludes Karaoke Angel. This song is about when your like main form of communication is music and someone else's main form of communication is music. It's a different kind of falling in love um, because you can be falling in love with the world that someone else has created and almost like the world that someone else has created feels more like home to you than the real world. And sometimes you get to like actually live in that world yourself as a musician. So, I mean, it's like, it's just like an artist falling in love with another artist, basically. That's what the song's about to me, but also knowing that's like the best part of yourself that you have to offer. And that's the best part of themselves that they have to offer. So it's not, It's not a whole reality, and it's not a whole person. For the album art, Sarlay chooses an image of herself, staring off while sitting on a couch, 
holding her silver tone guitar. That's like a recreation of another image that was lost. The photo felt like the viewer viewing me staring off into like space that kind of felt like a visual representation of the music to me in a way because so many of the songs are me I don't know I just it felt right and you know like a lot of the songs are kind of inspired by music from the 70s like Carol King and Joni Mitchell and Karen Dalton reminded me of those record covers. Partisan Records releases Karaoke Angel on September 20th, 2019. Upon its release, the record would receive a number of positive reviews, and Sarlay would spend much of the remainder of the year touring in support of the album, with a European tour booked for the following spring. Unfortunately, the shows would be canceled in March due to the rising concern of COVID-19. The strange year that has followed since the release of Karaoke Angel has been a time of great uncertainty, but it's also given Sarlay the space to properly reflect on her feelings towards her remarkable debut record. I'm really fucking proud of this record. I worked really hard on it. <laughs> um, I'm really proud of the songs. Yeah. I <laughs> I'm happy. I'm 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 I love it. I'm proud of it. I don't know what is I'm going to do next or what it's going to look like. I'll probably make another record, but it doesn't necessarily have to be that. I hope it looks different, you know. One of the things that I struggled with with touring this record was I want to like live in something with other people. And because so much of this record is just me and guitar, it was a lot of feeling like very vulnerable. It, the record is about being vulnerable. And that's kind of difficult to get up on stage and do every night. And I'll do it. But I think not necessarily like the level of vulnerability will go away. But I think for whatever I want to do next, I want it to be something that I can be like more surrounded by rather than like need to expose. <laughs> Thanks for listening to In Loving Recollection. A very special thanks to Molly Sarlay for speaking with me about this very special record. You can stream and buy Karaoke Angel at mollysarlay.com, various streaming platforms, and partisanrecords.com. Seek this stuff out. It'll make you a better person. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or at inlovingrecollection.com. We'll see you next time. We'll get through this. (laughs) 